Good morning, Christ Church. You guys actually look amazing for having lost an hour of sleep. You guys, uh, so don't you guys think like it's a little bit better now that we have our smartphones because uh, it changes the clocks for you? And you kind of, there's almost just something that psychologically feels better if the clock is switched for you and you just wake up and you didn't have to, anybody else? Is this just, no, you're like, no, it, it's terrible every time, no matter what smartphone, oh no. Um, yes, all right, that's good. Uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it with me to Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we began a series last week entitled Stories Along the Way, and we're looking together at stories, at parables Jesus told on his road from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he tells these stories in order to shape and mold and form us as disciples. Now, uh, today, uh, the the parable, the story that we're going to look at, this is just a a little warning, but the, the story that we're looking at today is centered on money and greed, and more specifically on the self-centered use and money. And so um, I'm just letting you know that, so if you wanted to get out right now while you still have time, you can. But uh, I I wanted to begin like this. Um, So uh, several years ago now, I was sitting in Starbucks, and I was actually preparing for a sermon, and a friend of mine walked in, and he began to engage in a conversation with me, and he was a therapist, and a a Christian guy, and a really incredibly smart and really wonderful therapist, and he told me a, a story of a woman who came to meet with him recently. He said that she was uh, going to turn 50 years old, and for her 50th birthday, her husband said that he was going to splurge and get her an expensive gift of her choosing. And so she had boiled her decision on what that gift would be down to two different options, and she came to her therapist to discuss which option she should choose. And option one was uh, her, her church was going to uh, a small country in Africa in order to work with an orphanage. And so she wanted to go on this trip with this team, and then they would uh, offer a big gift to this orphanage in order to help them uh, care for the needs of these little children. And so that was kind of one option. Uh, On the other side, she said, I I really, you know, I'm turning 50, I'm feeling insecure, I've been going on social media a a lot, and I just, you know, around my friends and whatnot. And and her other option was to have very expensive uh, body enhancement surgery. And she went to her therapist to talk this over. And as, as he was telling me the story, I just thought, you know, only in Southern California will you find a Christian going to a therapist to talk over a decision like this. And then my next thought, I just jumped into like my accusations and thinking about, you know, which rung of Dante's hell she would be occupying, you know, by engaging in this kind of conversation. As I was uh, jumping all over her in my mind uh, with my accusations and my self-righteousness, uh, my therapist friend said, you know, Josh, she said, the decision that she was facing is the same decision most of us are faced with on a day-to-day basis. Whether or not we are going to use our resources, our wealth, primarily to serve ourselves and uh, to service our own deep insecurities, or whether or not it will go outside in order to serve the needs of others, 
or in the words of Jesus in the parable we just heard read, whether or not we will be rich toward ourselves or rich toward God. Now, just a warning, you know, this particular text, uh, you're going to have a temptation to listen to the teaching of Jesus on behalf of someone else. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, you're like, oh, this would be such a good sermon for somebody else to hear who struggles with this issue of greed. But I want you to invite you to hear the word that Jesus says first as a word to yourself uh, before it's a word to somebody else. Now, the story that Jesus tells, it begins, again, he's, he's, he's on the road, and uh, it's dusty, and there's crowds all about him. And his disciples are there, and they're walking along the way. And then out of the crowd, suddenly, uh, someone in the crowd says to him, teacher, teacher, <laughs> tell my brother with me. So this man from, out, from the crowd comes to Jesus and he says, look, uh, come and tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, clearly, this man who approaches Jesus feels like he's getting a raw deal. Uh, his brother, maybe his older brother, who is tasked with being the executor of the inheritance, uh, maybe he's a, he's a shifty, kind of conniving sort of person. And maybe he's done his younger brother wrong, and, and his younger brother is feeling it. And he's like, I, you, somebody needs to help me here. Uh, this is an injustice that's being, it's being done. And sometimes this happens in our own world, right? Around the, the, the division of an estate, uh, in my own family, uh, my mom's side of the family, actually, two of my uncles got in a fight over a $20,000 dispute regarding my grandmother's inheritance. They didn't speak to each other for two decades, and then my, my uncle died, having never reconciled. And here, uh, these brothers, they're fighting. And so what do they do? Well, the brother goes to Jesus because in the first century, it was common to go to a rabbi who is expected to be something of an expert on legal matters. And so you would go to the rabbi to have him examine the case and render a verdict. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus you know, with all of his grasping, scolding anxiety in his voice, suggesting he himself never has enough. And he says, Jesus, tell the brother to ensure that I get what's coming to me. Now, normally in this kind of situation, you would go to the rabbi and ask the rabbi to render the verdict. But it's interesting in our story, look, uh, the, the, the young man, the brother, uh, he's not asking Jesus anything. He is instructing Jesus. He is telling Jesus what to do. Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, this man is not asking Jesus to render a verdict. He's already decided what he wants, and so he's asking Jesus to affirm the verdict he's already rendered. And in this instance, it's not the last time that somebody is going to use Jesus to try to coerce or manipulate a family member to do what they want that family member to do. Now, we know about that sort of thing, right? Well, Jesus snaps back and he says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? You know, Jesus will not be manipulated or coerced. And Jesus, as Jesus always does, he, three, he sees through the man's stink about justice, and he sees that below the surface is actually the viral sin of greed. 
So he says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? He says, this isn't about justice. There's something more going on here. And then commenting on this whole situation, Jesus turns from just talking to this man and he turns to his disciples, he turns to the crowd and he turns to all of us this morning and he says this, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness or greed for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, beware of covetousness. Uh, the word in Greek can actually be translated insatiable desire. I understand that um, if you are insatiably thirsty and you are stranded out on a little raft and you go to drink in the water from the ocean, that that water with all of its salt content will end up dehydrating you and it will kill you and you will become thirstier than you were before you drank. And Jesus says, this is greed. It is when you start to consume things or experiences or accolades, and yet the more you have, the more you want. It never satisfies. And Jesus says, beware of the viral sin of greed and then he drops this wisdom about life. He says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in one sentence, Jesus pretty much challenges and confronts what so much of our current modern economy runs on. The idea that life actually consists in the abundance of things we possess. And Jesus says, indeed, it does not. And then... Uh, to the guy who wants more inheritance and to a lot of us who want more experiences and money and success and friends and more likes and achievements and impressive skills, Jesus tells a story about a man who wants to build barns, more barns, actually. And listen to what he says. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? <laughs> For I have nowhere to store my crops. So Jesus launches into a story about a rich guy. Um, and, and this guy, you know, remember that song by Rod Stewart? You remember he said, some guys have all the luck. Some guys get all the breaks. Some guys get, you know, come on. Rod Stewart, of course, classic. Um, this guy seems to have all the breaks. He's got all the luck because he's rich. He's a landowner. And now, uh, this prosperous can-do guy who's always trading and buying and thinking and getting and selling, and who is so successful and has so much money and so much land, who's already got more than enough, on top of all of that, on this one particular year, the man has a bunker crop, a bumper crop. And it's just crazy. And uh, he didn't earn it. Uh, the land just produced. It's interesting, uh, Jesus attributes the production not to the man, but to the land. As if to say, you didn't create the earth or the soil. You didn't send the rain. This is gift and grace, all of this abundance, all of this crop. And uh, so now, with all of this bumper crop, the rich guy has a problem. It's actually the best kind of problem. It's a good problem. It's the kind of problem that most of us would love to have. He has got so much stuff, his barns can't contain it. 
I mean, could you imagine uh, you, 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 you um, get a raise or a bonus or you come into an inheritance and you're like, my bank account is too small to contain all of this wealth. Come on. <laughs> like, that would be, amen. And so he's got, he's got a good problem. It's the kind of problem that most of us wish we would have. He doesn't have enough space to store all of his crops. Uh, you know, Bank of America can't store all of your money. So he comes up with this practical and smart plan. He said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. <laughs> and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So he comes up with this plan, and it seems like a good plan, right? He's going to tear down the smaller barns. He's going to build bigger ones to store his stuff. And he's not going to contribute to this year's market saturation. Instead, he's going to hold his harvest back in order to achieve a higher price when the market's not so glutted. And uh, Jonathan, is, uh, he's getting his MBA. And what does that sound like, Jonathan? It sounds like good agribusiness, doesn't it? Good business practice. And then um, what he says next, I think, just sounds to all of us like a dream. Or at least, can I just be straight? It sounds like, to me, a dream. You have so much money that you get to retire early and move to Hawaii and eat as much fish as you want and drink as much craft beer as you want and go on as many hikes as you want and drink good wine and go on cruises and just enjoy. You retire early and enjoy life. This is, he's like, I'll say to my soul, soul, uh, you have so much laid up for many years. Now, relax and eat and drink and be merry and take photos of yourself on the cruise and in the convertible uh, with uh, hashtag blessed, hashtag thank you, Jesus. And, uh, and it sounds, I mean, t t it sounds awesome. It sounds like a dream. It sounds like what almost all of us would want to do. But Jesus doesn't think it's awesome. Jesus thinks this man's whole headspace is a problem. But what's the problem? Well, let's just make a couple observations about this man from this text. Number one, I want you to note that this man is obsessed with self. You know, over 10 times in three verses, he makes reference to himself. It's I and me and mine and my. And he gets in a conversation in our text. And who is his conversation partner? It is self. He, he addresses himself. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, if you were a business owner in the ancient world, you would talk with the men at the gates about business. This is where you'd talk shop and you'd say, hey, I got a bunker, bumper drop. You know, what should we do? You know, what do you think about this idea? And you'd kind of, but this man has nobody to talk to. This man's only conversation partner is himself because he's a rich man and he's alone. And, uh, and, and he's a landowner. And in the, 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 you know, the first century, you know, th these were the wealthy ones. And he is obsessed with his land, with his crops, and he views it all as there to serve the self. So number one, he is obsessed with himself. 
But secondly, I want you to see that with all of his thought of his self, he can only think about the bumper crop serving his self. It doesn't enter into his imagination how he might share all of this abundance. You know, back in the ancient world, again, you had landowners and then you had land workers. Uh, the landowners were the rich ones, and the land workers, they would pick the strawberries uh, off the 101, and they would go uh, into the, the factory farms, and they would gather the eggs from the battery cage chickens, and there would be day laborers, and they were eating hand to mouth. It was, uh, you know, you, you, you were dependent upon the landowner, and you didn't know whether or not you could feed your own family. And what I'm trying to say is this, is that this landowner was surrounded by need every day. Think about the Samaritan on the road to Jericho. He encountered in front of his very face a brother in need, a neighbor in need. And this landowner is surrounded every day. He just needs to open his eyes and see the men and women who are working his field, he just needs to open his eyes and see what's right in front of him to know that there is need all around every day, hurting, hungry people. But this man is so obsessed with self, he can't think about sharing, he can't think about need. You know, the fourth century theologian and pastor Ambrose points out that the rich man has storage available in plenty, but the storage is the storage of the mouths of the needy. They could have taken that grain in without him needing to build barns. But again, this man is not thinking about the needy. He's not thinking about the unhoused who are sleeping on the streets of LA uh, under the elements. He's only thinking about how hashtag blessed and how hashtag thank you Jesus he is. Now, at this point in the narrative, the story takes an ominous turn. Because right at the point where he is going to enter into this early retirement in Hawaii and enjoy all of his good meals and his good wine and his cruises and his convertible, just right when he's about ready to enter into the dream, you know? He's about ready to live the dream, enter this comfy, dreamy retirement. He dies. Life is over. And before he knows it, he finds himself standing before the God who created him and the land and the crops and all of the workers out in his field. And up to this point, the rich man has been doing all of the talking. He has been talking to himself and he's been talking about his goods, his abundance. He's been talking about his plans to tear down barns and build bigger ones. He's been talking and talking and talking. And now, right in the midst of all of the talking, God's thundering voice break it, breaks in. And God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, don't misunderstand. When God speaks that word fool, he's not engaged in name calling. Fool in the scriptures is the technical term to refer to anyone who lives their life without reference to the God who made you. 
It is utterly foolish to live your life and your existence apart from and without a daily recognition of the God who made you and those humans who live around you who are created in that God's image. And so while this man has addressed himself, you know, self, self, you know, independent, wealthy, prosperous self, God has another name for him. He says, fool. You have forgotten what life is about. You have forgotten that life is short, that we will die, and that when we die, we will stand before God and we will have to answer for what we have done with what has been entrusted to us. And then Jesus ends the story, and he turns back to all of us, and he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, this story is not just for one man. This is a story for every human who lays up treasure for themselves and is not rich toward God. And then Jesus' teaching ends. And now what I want to do is I want to just stand back and I want to just ask this question. You know, we've said that these stories are stories Jesus tells in order to mold and shape and form us to be faithful disciples in this world. And if that is the role of this story, then how might this story of the rich fool be intended to mold and shape us to live more faithfully in this world as his disciples? And I think as I read this story, I think Jesus is seeking to do three things to us and with us in this story. Number one, I think through this story, Jesus is confronting a lie. Jesus in our story is confronting a lie. And we could press this further. Jesus is confronting arguably one of the most persistent and persuasive and pervasive and believable lies that our culture tells again and again and again. And the lie is this, that your life, that my life, consists in the abundance of things we possess. And Jesus says that is a lie. Or we could put it like this. We are constantly schooled in this idea that the pathway into the good life, a life that is meaningful, and that we really want is a life that is made up of an abundance of stuff and experiences and vacations and dream cars and dream kitchens and accolades and accomplishments and straight A's and uh, entries into all the colleges we want, that the, the abundant life, the good life, the meaningful life consists in the abundance of things we possess. And this is this, this whole idea, this lie is ubiquitous. It's everywhere you turn. It's in the marketing that comes at us like waves of the sea every day. And what is the strategy of the corporate marketers on us? I mean, isn't this what they do so often? Uh, they take their product, whether it be uh, sugary, fuzzy water, or um, cheap beer, or a razor, or a, a Dodge truck, they take their product and then they associate that product in their marketing with images that we associate with the good life. And so there's the truck, you know, driving out on the mountains. It's adventure. Uh, there is uh, the, the beautiful athletic body drinking Sprite. 
Uh, there is a people enjoying life, having a party after they open that can of cheap beer. And, um, and, and so we, we connect these things. And what's the messaging? The messaging is the way into the good life is to buy more commodities and products. I mean, this is what our consumer-oriented, market-driven culture is doing. And, and it's there in social media. I mean, it's there, like, like we see this all the time. What happens on social media? Again, uh, there's, there, there's a whole micro-marketing that happens through social influencers. And what happens? What you take, again, you take carefully curated images of beautiful people in beautiful spaces looking the way you want to look, in the environment that you want to inhabit, with a look on their face that you want, with friends that you want, and then they, they product place some, some, something right in there as if to say, look, the way into this good life is to get more and more products. Now, here's the thing. Like, I don't think any of us is being duped, at least not at an intellectual level, are we? I mean, you're too smart for that, aren't you? Are you? Like, I mean, we know on our best days that life does not consist in the abundance of things we possess. We know that when we get to the end of our life and we are on our deathbed, we are not going to ask the nurse to roll us out into the parking lot so we can spend five last long minutes with our favorite car. You know, we're not going to invite the, the nurse to bring in, you know, um, our new Apple product so that we can caress it for five minutes before we die. No, we know instinctively that the stuff of life involves relationships, that life does not consist in the abundance of things we possess. And we have our stories in pop culture, you know, even though we ain't got money, I'm still in love with you. We know that love doesn't depend upon having more money. And uh, we, we, we know this. And yet, and yet I, I think that if we're honest, we so often buy into the lie. And Jesus says, don't buy into it for a minute. Life does not consist in the abundance of things you possess. That is a lie. The truth is that life consists of something better than the abundance of likes you get or of uh, friends you get on Be Real or uh, Asia you're earning in school or the amount of accolades you can build up, whatever you're trying to fill your barn with. Life consists of something better than that. Life is made up of deep and meaningful and healthy relationships with other humans. Life consists of a deep security in God. Life consists of being a part of something bigger than yourself and of serving neighbors. And, you know, all of the research on happiness, you know, over the last decade or so, there's been a truckload of research on happiness done from the best, most prestigious universities in the world. And the, the outcomes of those studies are not even controversial. And across the board, everyone says the same thing. More stuff and more money does not make you happy. What makes you happy? The studies again say it is healthy relationships, it is leaving, living a life of meaning and purpose, it is grounding your identity in something bigger than the self, namely God, and it is serving other humans. So Jesus is confronting a lie in our story. But I, I want to suggest Jesus is doing something else. Jesus is not only confronting a lie, Jesus, secondly, in our narrative, is exposing a threat. A threat to what? 
Jesus is exposing in our story a threat to faithful discipleship to Jesus. Faithful discipleship to Jesus, as we saw last week, preeminently has at its center loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. It involves looking outside of self and seeing the needs of neighbor. It involves looking outside of self and rendering your best worship and your love to God. And yet, Jesus is identifying in our story one of the most pernicious threats to faithful discipleship to Jesus. And what is that threat? It is greed. Can we all say that together? Greed. Greed is the threat. Pride is also a threat. That's right, Brother Steve. Brother Nella. Nella Vietz. What, what is greed, though? I mean, think for a minute. Greed sounds like such a bad thing. None of us wants to be called greedy. We think, you know, greed is limited to the Barry Madoffs of the world. But, but listen, what is greed? Greed is insatiable desire. It is your desire to fill your soul with something that you believe is going to make your soul okay and presentable and better, and your constant search to find more things around you that make you feel okay about being you, it's insatiable desire. Discontentment is the mark of it. You are discontent with what you have, with what you drive, with how you look, with what you have accomplished. It just is not enough. You know, Greed's theme song is that song from The Greatest Showman, you know? Uh, All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Come on, Natalie, never Never, never, never enough, never, come on. Like, like this is the song of, like, it is just not enough. The barns are not filled enough. What do you feel like you need? What is your barn missing and you can never fill enough of? And, and like, where do you feel this insatiable desire for more? Jesus says, this insatiable desire will turn you in on yourself, and it will turn you away from the needs of your brothers and sisters. You will not share your resources with those in need. You will not invest your resources in the mission of God in the local church. Uh, You will not expend your resources to help neighbors. You will not open your table and share your goods and share your table and share what's in your refrigerator, because if you do, there will not be enough for the thing you really need for self. You know, I was thinking about this, like, you know, my wife and I were were talking yesterday about this, and we just said, like, when I'm at home, oftentimes, like, I feel okay about myself and about my clothing and about my furniture and about, like, I'm content. But there are things I do and there are places I can go that can stimulate discontent. Pinterest, social media, uh, the mall, uh, Amazon.com, Uh, For me, shopping for more surfboards on Craigslist and just scrolling through, like, it's just never enough. And Jesus says that kind of desire that is latent within us all 
will curb you in on yourself and it will pull you away from a life of meaning and beauty that is marked by radical, generous love and glad self-giving, the kind of thing we see in Jesus. And so it's just worth asking, what are you trying to fill your barns with? Like, is it techie products? Is it experiences? Is it accomplishments? Are, are you storing up in your barn? You know, some of it's, it's not even like material stuff. For some of us, what we're storing up, what we never have enough of is uh, nursing our own wounds and the wrongs that have been done to us. You just want to keep piling up all of the hurts and all of the wrongs, and there is no, there's no end in sight, and it curbs you in on yourself, and it is all killing us. You know, it's just fascinating. You know, when you look at all the research out there, it's, again, it's just not even debatable. Like, shopping, Instagram, going to the mall, it creates anxiety and depression among all of us. But serving other humans, creating community around a table, it leads to a life of deep joy and satisfaction. So Jesus here in our text is exposing a great threat that will sabotage your ability to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus on the road to the cross, on the road to Jerusalem. And that is this viral, deep, oftentimes hidden and masked sin of greed. How are you doing right now? How are you doing on the guiltometer? Okay. Uh, so <laughs> let's move on to our final movement. And I want to invite our team up uh, at this point. We're going to close out here. But I want you to see in our text that Jesus is not only confronting a lie, the lie that life consists of the abundance of things we possess, and not only is Jesus in our text exposing a threat, one of the great threats to faithful discipleship to Jesus, namely greed. In our text, I want you to see that Jesus is embodying a different way. Again, friends, where is Jesus going in our story? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what is Jesus going to Jerusalem with? He doesn't have a lot of baggage. He's not driving a convertible. He doesn't have a bunch of techie products. He's got a band of disciples, and he's got the clothing on his back. And why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, because in Jerusalem, even the little he does have will be stripped away. He will lose everything, even his own life, and he will give himself fully and unreservedly for the healing and the reconciliation of all humanity. And it's instructive, I think, to contrast the rich fool in the parable with Jesus. The rich fool who feels like he never has enough for self. Though he is rich, his riches are not enough. He needs more. He's going to run short. He's got to build bigger barns. He needs to retire early. He needs more comfort. He needs more, uh, he needs more accolades. He needs to be more impressive. And, and the rich man doesn't have enough. And it's instructive to contrast this with Jesus. And what does Paul say about Jesus? He says, you know our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, not just 
a rich landowner, Jesus enjoyed infinite riches in the glory of heaven. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. All of existence ultimately finds its origin in him and belongs finally and fully to him. Though he was rich with everything, yet he made himself poor so that through his poverty, through divesting himself, through, through dying naked and broke and empty on a cross, you and I might be made rich. And Jesus says, I have come so that you can have life and that to the full. And you will never find life when you're living out of greed. It will always be empty. It will never be enough. But when you lay down your possessions and you open up your hands and you live with an open hand and you follow Jesus in his way of life where you sacrifice and you give, you divest, you lower your standard of living, you give more away, you open up your table, you open up your refrigerator, you open up the bank account and you say, I can trust God with my resources. Jesus says, you will find life. You will find life. We're closing our, our service today at the table. Coming as Pastor Robert so beautifully taught us a couple weeks ago, we, we come to the table once again to meet the risen Lord who opens up his table to us and says, come and feed on this bread, my broken body. Drink my shed blood, my love for you ingest these realities into your heart, root your life, build your life on this sacrificial self-giving love, and you will find your own heart satiated and satisfied and full so that you can go out and live with your resources, with freedom and with trust and with love. Just a minute, uh, I'm gonna invite our servers from the back, our, our, um, our servers to come forward, and then our uh, ushers in the back are gonna release our rows, and we're gonna invite you to come forward, and we're gonna share the bread and the cup with you and speak these words over you. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, and we would invite you to partake as you come up and then return back to your seats. If you're here today and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're investigating Christianity. First, God bless you for coming to church on the day you lost an hour of sleep. That's amazing. But don't feel pressure to participate in this practice uh, of coming forward and you know, receiving. Uh, you can either stay seated or just come forward and pass by if that feels more comfortable to you. But know that God's love, God's welcome, God's hospitality is open to you. God is not selfish with his love. He opens up his heart, he opens up his life, and he says, come and eat and come and drink. Come and share in this table. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we come to this table now, and as we share in the bread, and as we share in the cup, these elements that you have given to us, on the last night before you were crucified when you said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when you took the cup and you shared it with your followers and you said, take and drink, this is the blood of the new covenant 
as often as you partake of this, do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we come to this table celebrating this good news that you have given your life for us and you have welcomed us into fullness of life. God, may we find satisfaction in you and may we go out freer and more joyful and more willing to open up our lives and hands to others. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.